Now we have the great privilege of turning to the word of our God. We'll be reading from 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 12, reading through verse 14. 1 John 2, starting in verse 12, reading through verse 14. Before we read, let's pray together. God, we thank you that we have your word in our own language. And we ask that you would give light to our minds and to our hearts. That the glory of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, would shine into us. That we would see it afresh. And as we turn to this portion of your word, that we would find encouragement Encouragement to live the Christian life with a reassurance of the Christian faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. These verses are kind of like uh, breaking the action in the letter, this letter of First John, John's letter to his churches. We might think of it as sort of a halftime in a big game. So far, John has been hammering home one point which drives a, a stark dichotomy between two different groups of people, and you're either in the one group or you're in the other group. And he's been saying that there is one group of people who obeys God, who loves God, who has the truth, who loves each other and walks in the light. And there is another group of people who do not obey God, do not have the truth, do not love God, do not love each other, and they walk in the darkness. And you're either in the one group or you're in the other. And the occasion for John's writing is, is very simple again. It's that there's this group of people, a rather significant group of people it seems, who have left John's church or John's churches which he oversees, and they've left and they've followed after these heretical false teachers. They've what we, might, they, what we might call they've become apostates. And they've left behind, they've left behind John, John's gospel, and John's Jesus. And as they've done so, they've left this gaping hole in the church and in the hearts of the church members in John's churches. And, and what John wants to say is that these Christians, as they've left behind and they've claimed to have a brighter light and a better gospel, John is saying very simply that there are very simple tests to know who belongs to God and who does not, who loves God and who does not. And those who have separated, the apostates, fail every last one of these tests. But now John changes gears, and some encouragement is in order. After all, John is writing this letter to his church, to his people, to those who have stayed behind and have stayed faithful to him and his gospel and his Jesus. There is 
a time for a slap on the wrist or a spiritual whack in the back of the head, but there is as well time for encouragement. And John, having done the former, now turns and does the latter. We might consider this to be sort of an apostolic pep talk. And here you have the Apostle John, and he says to his churches, good job. You are doing well, now get out there and go do it again. Keep up the good work. He gives them sort of a, a slap in the backside and sends them back out to go finish the work, saying, now that you have been reassured in the Christian faith, now go out and continue living in the Christian life. And as he does so, John doubles down on his message. He says, I am the apostle, he is the apostle, his gospel saves, his people are the true church, his church knows God, and his church has overcome the devil by the power of the word of God, which they have. They don't need a better word, they need the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so John doubles down on his message, and as he does, he addresses his message to three different groups of people. He brings encouragement to three different groups of people, or perhaps it's two John addresses dear children, fathers, and young men. Now there's some ambiguity about whether dear children is the main category and young men and fathers are kind of subcategories, or whether young dear children, fathers, and young men are three different categories. It could be that these dear children are those who are very young in the faith those who have been converted to Christ rather recently. Or it could be that dear children refer to all the people that John writes to. And earlier in, in the letter of John, in this first John, John refers to his whole church as children. And so it seems more likely that dear children applies to all of these people. John wants to reassure the member of his churches, the members of his churches, that they are indeed children of God. And as they are children of God, they are beloved. And so we'll start that here in the first part of verse 12 and the last part of verse 13. He says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. Now whether this dear children applies only to those who are new in the faith or to all people really doesn't make that big of a difference because whether you are new in the faith or you've been in the faith for 40 or 50 years, it still remains true that there was a time in which you were a child in the faith and there was a time in which you first came to Christ, a time in which you were reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit, and a time when you first confessed sin and had it washed away by the blood of the Lord Jesus. And so, in having your sin washed away, you become a child of God. That is true of you whether you have been a Christian all your life, you are of older age, or whether you were just become a Christian recently. And so John writes to these dear children, and he uses two different words. We translate both of them here as dear children. He uses two different words to refer to these children. And he does it because he wants them to understand the, the full orb, the full nature of what it means to be a child of God. The first word he uses is the word technia. It simply means a child who is being discipled. 
one who is, who is being disciplined, who is being taught and brought along the way. Jesus refers to his disciples this way. When Jesus is teaching his disciples about the resurrection, about the ascension, how he is going to leave them, he says, dear children. Now, of course, the disciples weren't children, but they were children in the sense that they were being taught and discipled and disciplined even. But the second word that John uses is the word paideia, which can be an infant, somebody who is born and who is beloved. When you read in in the nativity account, when Herod sends the wise men out to go find the baby who had been born in Bethlehem, he sends them out to look for the paideia. Or in Hebrews, in the letter to the Hebrews or the book of Hebrews, when Moses is placed in the basket and he's found by Pharaoh's daughter, he's called a paideia. We use, this word, we use this word in our own language, in our own time, though perhaps we don't always notice it. When we have when we have baptisms like this morning of infants, we call that pedo-baptism. Or more sinister sense, we call people who have an unnatural desire for young children pedophiles, like some of those who watch the recent Netflix film. Maybe we should get rid of some of those things from our homes. But whether it is that we're talking about the one sense or the other, the big picture here is that God's people are beloved. They are being taught and they are being trained in the faith. They are brothers and sisters in the faith, brothers and sisters of John, but more importantly, they are brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they know their father. John is hitting this point again as well. They know their father. They don't need some extra super spiritual knowledge. They already know him. They know him not only in an intellectual sense, but they know him in a relational sense. They know him personally. Now, do they know about him? Absolutely, they know about him. But more than that, they know him. And they love him as a child knows and loves a father. And they have known him from the very beginning. If you go back to verse 9 of chapter 1, we read, about those who in the beginning confess their sins. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And you go back just a couple of verses to chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. These are things which define children of God. So He says that you having confessed your sins, are in fact beloved children of God. You who have remained faithful. You are the true children of God. And that's what John is saying here in verse 12. But he says, your sins have been forgiven. He doesn't simply say your sins were forgiven. Now that's true. There is a point in time in which your sins were forgiven, in which the, the sin is forgiven in a moment. That moment you first believe, the sin is forgiven. But that's not the, the full extent of what John wants to tell his readers here. He uses a different tense of the word that means that you have been forgiven and you are continually forgiven. It's, it's not just past tense, but it's past tense with a present tense and a future tense implied. You have been forgiven, you are forgiven, and you will continue to be forgiven all in the same way 
through belonging to God by being forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. So you need to be encouraged. Yes, you need to be encouraged. This is where your encouragement is found. Your encouragement is found in that you were not forgiven and then left on your own for the rest of your life. That brings no encouragement, does it? But that you were encouraged by having been forgiven, and we are encouraged now that we continue to be forgiven, and we are encouraged and that we will continue to be encouraged. We will continue to be forgiven until either we die or Christ comes. That's the encouragement that Paul, or that John rather, is offering to these people, to these children. But then he turns his attention in verses 13 and then the first part of 14 to fathers. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. In the first part of verse 14, I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. To the children, John writes two different things. To the fathers, he writes one thing two different ways, two different times. And what he says here is that you have known him who is from the beginning. These fathers are those who are mature in the faith. They have a deep knowledge and relationship with the Father and with Christ who is from the beginning. We might say that these are those who speak to God with a reverent familiarity. They love God, they revere God, they hold Him as holy, but they also have a deeper relationship with Him. They are children of God, but we might say that they are older children of God. They have begun to be older and more mature in their faith as time goes on, as they are disciplined and discipled they come nearer and nearer to bearing the family resemblance as older children. And these older saints, these seasoned, mature saints, these are a great blessing to a church. You can imagine how that would have been true for John's church as well. You know, when you go to a church, when I go to visit a church and I don't see anybody over the age of 45, there is a sense in which I pity the church. Now, sometimes that is necessary, and it is often the case in other countries when gospel missionaries go in that churches are established among younger people and there are no fathers of the faith, but generally speaking, I pity churches that don't have people who are over the age of 45. Where are those who have lived long and fruitful lives? Where are those who are in position to mentor younger saints? Where are those who are wise, not with simply a worldly wisdom, those how to balance budgets, but those who are wise with a spiritual wisdom, where they have crafted and carved out a life marked out by the fruits of the Spirit? These are important saints in the church. And John writes to encourage these too. You have known him who is from the beginning. You have known Christ. You continue to know Christ. And your labors, your lifetime of labors, have not been in vain. Just think about how these 
seasoned saints would have been a great blessing to John's church. This church split with the heretics leaving would have rocked them to the core. The confusion would have been all over the place. Why are they leaving? Is what they're saying true? Look at all the empty seats in this church that used to be full. How is this happening? Can I really trust John? Is John's Jesus, is he really enough? And you can think of these older fathers. Now John writes in masculine terms here, fathers and young men, but we can understand just as well, that's how ancient writers wrote. They wrote in masculine terms. In this case, it doesn't mean only fathers, masculine, or only young men. We can think of those who simply are more mature in the faith and those who are a little bit less mature in the faith. But these who are more mature in the faith, you can imagine that they were necessary, that when the church was being, being split apart, they could speak to the younger members and say, no, you're not crazy. No, you're not missing out. This is where the Gospel is. This is where Christ is. You can stay here. You should stay here. When things get rocky and tumultuous, we need people who have been there and done that to steady the ship and hold things together. And that's exactly what these fathers were. And so John wants to encourage them again and again. Two times you have known Him who was from the beginning. I wonder, if you have, I wonder if you have in your mind fathers of the faith. I can think of one man in particular who comes to my mind. He was an older man. I think he was in his upper 70s, maybe lower 80s. He knew the Bible like the back of his hand. Maybe even better. I don't look at the back of my hand very often. He might have known his Bible better than the back of his hand. He was humble. He was reverent. He was strong, and he could teach the Bible. One of the great honors of my life is that he asked me to substitute teach his Sunday school class when he was out of town for a week. I would have dropped everything to teach that class. And appropriately so, his wife would have been a mother of the church, a holy and righteous woman in her own right. You know, if I was in a church that was being rocked to the core I would want to be by his side. And I would want to be able to lean on him. You might think of some men locally. You might think of somebody like Dr. Joel Naderhood. But you know, you don't have to be the voice of the back to God hour to be a father of the faith. You don't have to be any, any, uh, you don't have to be a pastor. The church benefits from teachers and, and preachers. You don't have to be a teacher or a preacher or a PhD or anything else. You don't have to be those things in order to be a father or a mother of the church. The, the church needs fathers and mothers in the church who were pipe fitters or salespeople or nurses or stay-at-home moms or whatever else it is. The church needs those who are spiritually mature who can say, I've been there, I've done that, walk with me. We need people who can say with Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. Can you say that? If you are older, can you say that? Follow me as I follow Christ. We need people who have known Him who is from the beginning and who know Him well. 
And it is a loss to the church if we don't have these kinds of people. The author to the Hebrews says to his hearers, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I think in the spirit of encouragement, which is what John is giving here, we should allow the Spirit to encourage us in the Word to strive to become fathers and mothers in the church. Some of you are younger. In younger generations, you have not achieved such a status yet. But strive for it. Strive one day that 10, 20, 30 years from now, you might be the one who is able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. That when the church is in trouble and goes through tumultuous times, that you are the one who anchors the church. And people look to you for leadership and for assurance that they're not crazy and that it is worth it to follow Christ, whatever the cost may be. You know, I wonder if we haven't always done this so well in the American church. Perhaps we've taken for granted things that we shouldn't have taken for granted. And I think we bear the fruit of that to this day. That there have been a lack of fathers and mothers in the church, but that shouldn't be the case any longer. And we should, we should seek better. I don't think in the generation to come that things are going to get a whole lot easier. Maybe I'm wrong. I could be wrong, especially if churches like ours keep popping out children at the rate that our church pops them out. But I don't think so. I think things are going to get more difficult for churches. And so the need for fathers and mothers will become even greater than it is now. And the need is already great. So I think we should allow the word through the spirit to encourage us, to spur us on, to become fathers and mothers in the faith. But how? So some of you may be asking, well, how? I don't, I don't know how to do that. I don't think it's really rocket science. It might be intimidating, but it's not rocket science. Just find somebody younger and ask if they want to spend time together. If they say no, that's okay. Find somebody else. And then just set aside a time. You don't have to be able to write lesson plans. Find a book. Find a book of the Bible that you would like to study. Use a study Bible. Use a study guide. Or perhaps find a, a time-tested, tried-and-true book like A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy or uh, R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God, J.I. Packer's Knowing God. Find one of these books. Read it. Talk about it. Talk about just the Christian life. What does it look like to be a godly man or to be a godly woman? Pray together. I think you would be astonished at the difference that might make in somebody's life. And finally, John addresses young men in the middle of verse 13 and then at the end of verse 14. He says, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. 
I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the Word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Young men, now John addresses those who are not quite as spiritually mature, but who are spiritually militant. That is, that they have a degree of zeal and fervor about them. He addresses them in, in military terms. They are soldiers. They are soldiers in the faith. But more than that, they are already victorious soldiers. He's telling them that you have already won the battle. Paul addresses Young Timothy, young Timothy, a pastor he's left behind in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul's about to die. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, this is how he writes to Timothy. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men, who will be able to teach others also, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. These young men, somewhat seasoned, but not fathers and mothers yet, these, these young people are militant against sin, and they have already suffered some. They have already suffered, as Paul told Timothy to suffer. They have suffered in putting idols to death and in dying to themselves. They have begun to carry the cross of Christ in the following of Christ. They have resisted the temptation to follow after the super-Christians and to think that somehow they can do better than what they have already done. They have resisted the temptation to leave John and John's Gospel and John's Jesus behind. They have fought against all these temptations and they have defeated all of these temptations and they have persevered through the splitting of this church and they have persevered through all that has gone on. They have been spiritual warriors all the way along the way and John says, you have been victorious. And just think of the kinds of enemies that they have defeated. Before Paul gets into Ephesians 6 in the, the whole armor of God, Paul is going to speak about the armor of God and, and he's going to list out all these different pieces of armor. But before he gets there, he tells us why we need the armor of God and who we need to fight that we would need the armor of God. He says in Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 12, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. How's that for drama? These young men have wrestled against all these forces. They've wrestled against rulers and authorities and cosmic forces of evil. They have wrestled against the fallen angels. They have wrestled against darkness. They have wrestled against the evil one himself. And to carry the metaphor forward, they have pinned every last enemy. And John wants them to know that you have won. You have even overcome the evil one. They have fought the good fight, and they have come out on top. Oh, isn't that quite something? Does this mean that the fighting is over them, over for them for the rest of their lives? No, of course that's not what it means. There will be more battles to fight, more wrestling to be done, and more victories to win. But this battle, 
this battle is already won. They've won this one. And they can put it in the win column. And they can celebrate. We should celebrate every spiritual victory. We should celebrate every time we wrestle against the spiritual forces, whether greatly or in a small way, and come out on top. So John wants them to know they have reason for celebration. Just like the church can use mothers and fathers, the church can always use young men or young women who are zealous for the truth. The church can always use those who are, who are striving for maturity, those who would seek to put to death any enemy that may face the church. The church can always use more people who are willing to fight the good fight, who are able to be militant against sin. You know, we say there's strength in numbers. And that is most certainly the truth. I remember when we were not together, we were apart and... Uh, I would have to watch myself preach on the television. You know, it was, it was okay, but it was, not, it was not my favorite, that's for sure. Because there is strength in numbers. There is strength in being here together. There is strength in seeing the other saints. There is strength in being able to say, I strive along these people. These people are my people. I'm not alone in the fight. There is strength in numbers. The church needs fathers and mothers. The church needs young men and young women who are going to fight together against the cosmic forces of evil and strive together to overcome the evil one. And that's what these young men have done. These young men have striven against the evil one and they have given no quarter to rebellion against God. They have given no mercy to sin, but they have done all that they can and all that they have needed to do to win. So they defeated the evil one. Now we need to note how this was done. John adds a how in the last part of verse 14. Because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you. I don't particularly relish the idea of being in a wrestling match with the devil. I think it would be safe to say, and I would hope that we could say it, that if we were to do that on our own, we would not come out on top. But they have been made strong. They have been made strong for the task because the Word of God lives in them. And because the Word of God lives in them, they are able to defeat every enemy that may come against them. I am not strong enough to defeat any of those forces that Paul listed off in Ephesians 6. Most certainly, not the evil one that John refers to. But when the Word of God fills us, we are strong enough. We are as strong as the Word of God makes us. Not one bit less, and not one bit more. And you have to recognize what an encouragement this would have been to the souls in John's church to the hearts in John's church. Their hearts would have been broken. These friends, I used to call them brothers and sisters in the Lord, they've left. And their hearts are broken. Have they lost 
have they lost? John writes to them and says, no, you haven't lost. You've won. I'm sure it would be very hard for them to feel victorious. John wants to encourage them that that's exactly what they are. This must have felt like a letter which came from battlefield a long ways away and announced victory, an unexpected victory. I think of the Battle of Marathon. It's a battle waged 500 years or so before Jesus was born between the Greeks and the Persians. Persians were a mighty empire, the mightiest empire the world had ever seen to that point. They controlled a huge chunk of Asia, and they wanted to come, and they wanted to control Europe as well. And so they, they begin trying to break into Greece, and the Greeks, led by the Athenians, they're, they're fairly powerful, but nothing like the Persians. And so they send out whatever force they have, but their force is vastly outnumbered. And so the Athenian leaders sit back in the forum, or wherever they were sitting, and they sit there wondering how the battle is going to go. And they must have thought it was not going to go very well. Smaller armies do not defeat much larger armies very often. And so they sat and they wondered, are we the last stewards of Greek culture? Are we the last overseers of Western civilization? Will it all be over? Is it all over? Well, it wasn't all over. And very unsuspectingly, a man comes running, this is a myth now, a man comes running from the battlefield, his name is Phidippides, and he runs 26 miles, the very first marathon. He runs 26 miles, and he comes into where the Athenian leaders were, and he says, Nenekakamen, which means we have won. Then out of exhaustion, he keels over dead. Take note, you who would run marathons. He says, we have won. And you must imagine that this just exhilarates their minds. They would have thought for sure we were going to lose. Perhaps they had their bags packed with all the rest of the Greeks getting ready to flee as far as they could away as their whole civilization, their whole culture was burned to the ground. But no, the man comes in and he says, we have won. That's what John is saying here. You have won. It may not feel like it. You may not have expected it. But you have won. In fact, when John uses the word overcome, you have overcome the evil one. The same root of that nenikakamen, nike, nike, is what he uses. You have won. You have defeated the evil one. You have been faithful. The battle is over. Rejoice. I wonder if some of us need that same encouragement. It's easy to feel always beat up and never built up. It's easy to feel like we're always losing and to lose sight of all the battles we have won along the way. Are you the same person you were when you were converted? Are you the same person you were 10 years ago? If you aren't, if you are holier, if you are nearer to Christ, if you are more mature, then you have won victories. And each and every victory is worth celebrating. So John writes back to his church, and he says, you have won. 
Are there more victories to win? Yes, there will be. But this one is over. Take the encouragement. And I want us to take that encouragement as well. We can win. And through the power of the Word of God in us, even the mightiest of our enemies can be crushed under our feet. Praise God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the times that your word convicts us, shines light upon our weaknesses and lets us see them and drives us away from them. And we thank you for the times when your word brings encouragement to us that we know you, that we have been loved by you, that our sins have been forgiven, that we have waged the war against all the spiritual forces of darkness, even against the evil one himself, and that we have won. And we thank you that your word dwells in us and gives us the strength to meet every challenge and then gives us the ultimate victory in Christ. Send us forth from this place with this encouragement that we have won. And in Christ we will keep winning until we find the final victory and we cross the final finish line. And we hear the words of the perfect victory, well done, good and faithful servant. We long for those words. And we rejoice that in Christ we may hear them. So perhaps we need to hear them faintly in our ears already, giving, the, uh, giving us the encouragement to keep striving ever nearer to Christ and his great victory. We pray in his name. Amen.